you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 is where we'll be in just a couple minutes. I'll tell you, if you're visiting with us, we are so thankful uh, that you're here. Uh, we want you to know uh, it is our goal uh, to glorify God in this place, uh, to do things His way, to submit our wills to Him, and uh, pray also that this, this lesson would be the same way, uh, that uh, His Word would be exalted and that it would be helpful uh, to every one of us. You know, the, the name on our sign is uh, Church of Christ. And that is not a, a title of a denomination. That's a description of just simply what we're trying to be. A church that belongs to Jesus our Lord. We belong to Him. We sit at His feet. We learn from Him. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he said, I determined to declare nothing to you except for Christ and Him crucified. And that is one of my goals as you hear regular preaching from this pulpit. That Christ would be exalted, that we would have Christ-focused teaching occasionally and regularly. And so in that, let's talk about this passage, wherever the clicker may be. It's not here. Come on, Fred. <laughs> you didn't know Fred. He's a big joker. And no. Here's the learning part we want to learn from Jesus this morning. At the very end of the testing and temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, when the devil was tempting Jesus, in Luke 4 and verse 13, it says, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. At the end of Jesus' tempting, the devil didn't just stop and surrender. He'll do whatever he can throughout the rest of Christ and his life on earth, and then following that, he'll do whatever he can to damage the name of Christ, and he's doing it today. He is trying to fight against any church that would represent him and any person that would represent Jesus the Christ. He's doing everything he can to steal our hope, to steal what we would put our faith in. And if he can, then he may be able to take several down with us. He may be able to discourage and dismount people from their faith. You could say that the devil has a vendetta against Jesus. We're going to learn this morning how the devil tempted Jesus and discover how he's tempting us at the next opportune time. We're going to look at how Jesus overcame those temptations. And then we're going to see, are there things that the devil's still doing just like he did in Luke 4 with Jesus? I believe he is. Let's look at that whole section, the whole story, beginning in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Luke 4 and verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness being tempted for forty days by the devil, and in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, 
but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and in him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over over you to keep you, and uh, in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out throughout the surrounding region. Why 40 days, 40 days of tempting the text describes? And we get a selection of those temptations. Notice, this is all God-directed. That's why I went to verse 14. Some of you are like, hey, you should have stopped there at 13. That's why I went to 14. At the beginning, the Spirit led him out into the wilderness, and at the end, he came out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit, the Spirit. There is a, um, there's a book ending there to show us this is not just Jesus experimenting in the wilderness. This is God-led. Okay, but we're not going to get into all the details about that, but just think about it. Jesus is willing and fulfilling what Israel failed in. They were in the wilderness for 40 years and failed. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and never failed, but pleased his father. You know, the text there, (laughs) sometimes the Bible has these understatements. Look at the end of verse 2. He was hungry. Uh, it's, not, no, it's not just that we're getting a little hungry for lunch. That is severely famished. 40 days of fasting. You're at your end. You're, you're at your humanly, humanly possible end. And so what might be our temptation when we're reading this if he was just a little hungry? If he was doing pretty well with himself? Well, You know, Jesus, it was easy for him to fight off these temptations. He was in full strength and everything was going great for him. No, we cannot call out to Jesus and our temptations and say, you don't know the kind of pain and suffering and physical toil that I have in my... He went to the extreme without dying here and was still able to answer the devil. And so he gives us this tempted in all points that we are In Hebrews 4.15, he gives it to us here, and that he fully trusted in God even at his weakest, physically, emotionally, I'm sure, 40 days of not eating. But what's really going on in this text? Is this this just simply showing us, specifically, let's talk about the first temptation. Is this just showing us that we need to not eat so much? (laughs) Or, hey, we need to have control over our eating? You know, the the devil says you you need to change that stone into bread, and he didn't, so, you know, he he wasn't tempted by food. Is that really what's going on here? Or is there something deeper? 
The way that Jesus responds in this text should help us. Do you see that that in your Bible is a quote? Maybe it's in italics. That is quoting, when he responds in verse 4 to him, that's quoting a passage out of Deuteronomy 8, which says that you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness, talking to uh, the children of Israel in the second generation, to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. So He humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Moses is telling that second generation, that they should not live by bread alone. Wait, doesn't that sound a little counterintuitive? Don't live by bread alone, but I gave you bread. Is that, what's really going on here? And, and that he's, he's, he's saying this, that this is what happened, but yet this is another hyperlink. So Jesus told us, he quoted from this, but this is referring back to something else. So we need to look at that original story. This will help us with what's going on in that temptation. Go to, uh, keep your finger in Luke. We'll, we'll turn back there. But go to Exodus 16. Exodus 16. The context here is that Israel was just rescued out of Egypt. And they had seen the incredible deliverance from God through the Red Sea. And you just get a little bit further. One chapter later, and Israel comes out and they complain, the children of Israel, the nation, complains against Moses. And they say to him, Exodus 16 verse 3, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Well, they complained against the Lord that they didn't have food. So what God did was He says, I'll fill you up. I'll give you bread and I'll give you quail. Now, the focus of this story, though, in 16, is on the bread called manna. And God gives them an answer about manna. He tells them two things they must do. Number one, you're to go out in the morning and you're to take an omer for yourself, just a portion for, your, for each person. Don't leave it. If you leave it, it will uh, rot, and worms will grow in it, and it will stink. Or as I've said in the past, stinketh. Um, it will do that. And then uh, the second command that he gave them was gather twice as much on Friday, because Saturday, the Sabbath, was for them to rest and to trust that God would take care of them. So they were to take twice as much on Friday, and on Saturday, no manna would be out on the ground to take care of them. They would have already had some from Friday. Well, you can imagine what happens. Both commands, both situations, they don't listen to God. They want the bread, but they don't listen to what God said. They went out to gather on Saturday, and guess what? No manna. There was no manna there. Look at God's response. That's key to this temptation. Look at God's response in uh, Exodus 16 and verse 28. Whenever they rebel against him twice here about the bread, 
The Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. This is what the Lord wanted for them. Stay in your place. Listen to what I told you. Obey what I told you, and it will be for you. It will be taken care of for you. So what's going on in Luke 4? Why would Jesus reference this story? Why would he reference that God was teaching them, man shall not live by bread alone? God was saying, if you want to depend on yourself, it's not going to work out for you. It will not work out. Stand in your place. Be humble and trust. So Jesus, when he speaks to the devil, and he says to them, it's written. When, when the devil says, hey, will you turn this into bread? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's referencing that I was led out here by God, and by God I will be delivered. I was led out here by God, and by God I will be delivered. He will not let me perish. I'm going to stand in my place. Jesus is going to wait on the deliverance from his hunger. God will not forsake him. The issue isn't bread. It wasn't here, and it, and it wasn't in Jesus' situation. The issue is, is God's word enough for me? Well, what's the... What's the temptation? To trade God for self-reliance. That's the first temptation. To trade God for self-reliance. Could Jesus turn that into bread? A hundred percent yes. We see him multiply loaves later. But it wouldn't have been according to the Father's will. Jesus didn't have his six shooters out and shooting miracles. Pew, 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 all the time. He didn't do that. Jesus gave miracles to glorify the Father. So when he's tempted to do a miracle that's not the Father's will, he's not going to do it. The temptation is to exchange whatever God has provided for what I can provide. Now that's really important. What I can provide. Have any of you here been tempted to be prideful about being the world's greatest rocket scientist? Yeah, me neither. Never even close to being tempted for that. Because it's not in my ability to do that. The temptation is within our ability. What I can do, my self-reliance, I'm going to choose to do over God and what God could provide. So what's the next opportune time then? When is, when is the devil going to come back around for this and trying to tempt us with this? Well, let me lay some groundwork for that first. Our culture. Our culture, our culture has been um, inundated with this idea of self-gratification, instant gratification, whenever, however you want. We have more abilities now than we ever thought possible. Think about it. Do you remember 
Let's take back a, a trip in memory lane. Do you remember when you had to be very intentional about your TV time? Do you remember when you couldn't just watch the news? You had to wait for the news to come on? What about now? Cap. There it is. Boom. Do you remember when you had to be intentional about a favorite show that you had? And you had to wait till the next Thursday, because it was coming on, but the next Thursday is a holiday. It's not going to be on that week. Now, what? Tap, and you can watch your show on any device you want, and you can watch it for hours. Just binge watch is the, is the term. That was not a thing before. Unless you had a really large DVD or VHS collection. Um, if you missed the game, you had to make sure it was caught on VHS. Um, what's the other one? TV Guide, if you remember that book. You want to go to a, you watch a movie? Well, we're going to have to either see if the, the movie is going to be on at some point, or we're going to have to get in our car and drive to Blockbuster. That's, it. That's just not a thing anymore. If I want to watch a movie, I can watch it right, I can watch it right here in the pulpit. <laughs> if I wanted to. Anytime. And even if you want a Reese's cup and a Mountain Dew at 2 a.m., I've never done that. But if you wanted it, tap, DoorDash would go to Toot and Totem and get it for you. Bring it right over to your house when you have to get off the couch. Well, let me ask you then. Christian, does that have any effect on your soul? How does it? How does that affect us? I'm going to give a caveat, and I want you to hear me clearly on this. I'm not against medicine at all, okay? So don't don't take take this as, wow, he really downed medicine. Not at all. I believe there's legitimate uses for medicine. I listened to a book from a friend of mine, um, a PA, about the, the, the 10 most popular medicines of all time. And if what you can guess is, what type of medicine was that? That was the most popular of all time. Though the original intent was good, they were painkillers. Society wreckers, morphine, heroin, opiates, amphetamines, fentanyl. And he talks in the book about how they were overprescribed, even early on when they first got these things. Um, if you had a cough or if you had a cramp as a lady, you could go to your doctor and they would give you a nice prescription of heroin. Just, it just didn't work out. It was not wise and not good. And in fact, he talks about America has become the worst abuser. We have less than 10% of the world's population, and we use close to 90% of the world's drugs. Well, think about that. And he goes to the very end of the book, and he just finally says, well, what was, why? why? Why is America the one that struggles more with drugs than, than most countries? Why is that? And I loved his conclusion. Perhaps, perhaps it's the wussification of people. As soon as pain enters someone's life, we got to get it out immediately, in any means possible. We've got to. So before we go condemning the U.S. and all this terrible and all that, does this sound any different? 
to you? Yeah, I got a sinus infection. Can you pray it out, please? Say pray for me. I need to get it. I need, I need to be. I need to be well. I was at a uh, another example. I was at a study once. We were praying about things, about the scriptures, about the text. We were thanking God for things, and I asked, I asked as it usually do at the end of a study, and people were giving different things about what we studied. And one guy raised his hand. And he says, "Can you pray for my knuckles?" They're a little swollen today. We just we want we want comfort immediately. And we need it immediately. I'm not saying again that we can't pray for all things. I understand the, the scriptures that teach that, but what I'm saying is, why are we running away from all and every challenge? I, I can't I can't even have a tiny cold. It might it might wreck my life. Why is that? What I was talking about. This is how the devil has laid that out. And, and here's the thing. He'll work on us. That's a little example. But he'll work on us the, the next opportune time, T-N-O-T, in our trials. He will work on us in our sufferings. If he can gain an opportunity to take us away from the Lord, he'll do it in our sufferings and in our trials. Let me, let me look at two examples. The scriptures teach us differently than the devil does. The scriptures teach us that our trials actually produce something good in us. The first one is 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice, our trials will produce a faith in us that is tested and true. We'll get some grit in our faith. If you think about somebody that you really look up to in the faith, I would bet they've suffered some in their life. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. If my outward man is perishing, what does he call it? If my body is struggling, what does he call it? Light. This is light. It's a light affliction. Now, I don't think that Paul was stranger to, to, to um, physical pain or suffering. He's not trying to belittle it, but it's light. Why? Because what is working for us is far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. The things that we're struggling with in this body will prepare us for the next. In our tap culture, when something like this happens to us, when our, when our, our body or our world is suffering, what do we want? Immediate release. Tap. Let's get out of here. The scriptures do not teach that. The scriptures say, stop, wait. You want to get out of it, 
but at what cost? And that's the question that Jesus had to grapple with. I can get out of this right now. I can have, I can have a really nice buttery loaf of bread. But at what cost? What cost? This is the opportune time for you, you and I. When we're going through difficulties in our life, we have a temptation to jump ship and figure out how I can rely on myself and not on the Lord. You know of situations like this. I know of two right now. Um, my marriage is a wreck. So what do I need to do? I need to just keep having kids. And somehow that'll fix it. That's self-reliance. That's relying on the wrong thing. God can fix our marriages. My body is failing me, so I'm just going to find a way to vent, and I'm going to yell at people. Wrong way. We're trading God for our self-reliance. And if you think about this, this is the same lie from the beginning that what Eve, Eve heard. What God has given you, Austin, is not enough. You can fix this. Go on. You do what you need to do. These passages teach us, stop, ask the question, what's going on here? What's the actually, what is God trying to use me for in this circumstance? Back to Exodus, we need to stand in our place. If we don't, the devil will win every time. Let's look to God. Next section, look at uh, 5 through 8. We read this, but look at that temptation again. The devil takes him out on a high mountain. What was this temptation about? I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Jesus at that moment when he said, fall down and worship me, Jesus didn't go, oh, that, that kind of sounds good. I don't know about falling down and worshiping the devil would be tempting to Jesus. I don't think anybody wants to do that, really. But what was he tempted with? He was tempted to trade his role. His role was what? His role was to come and to die for all people. And in that, Isaiah 2, Daniel 2, his mountain would consume the whole earth. The devil takes him up on a mountain and shows the kingdoms of the earth and says, I'll give them to you. And Jesus says, my mountain, my kingdom will consume the whole earth through what? Not through power and coercion like the devil, but through voluntary service that people would come to the mountain of the Lord. The devil's inviting him to a shortcut to that role and that work. And he says, you know, you're going to have all that glory. All their glory, all the authority. It sounds the same, but is it? Is it really the same? Look at how Jesus answers him. He will not violate the first commandment. Don't have any other gods before me. In verse 8, he says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only will you serve. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 10, keep your finger in Luke. Let's just read that where it's quoted from. So I think it's helpful there. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 10. This is as Moses is preparing them to go into the, to the promised land. And notice their role. Notice what they need to be doing when they go in. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 10. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, 
Hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, when you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him and shall take oaths in His name. What happened? We talked a little bit about it this morning at the 9 o'clock. What happened when they went into the land? They forgot Him. They did not remember who they, who they were. Their role and their purpose was to go in and inhabit the land and worship the Lord. They let the, the people stay. They didn't drive them out. And they conquered them spiritually. They did not follow the Lord. So they forgot their role. When God has fulfilled His role, He's teaching them, they need to fulfill theirs. But they forgot the reason of why they were in the land. So... Jesus is saying, Jesus is being offered, I know God sent you here for this, but can you do this? Same thing, right? What's the next opportune time? We see this all the time in our culture. The temptation to trade our role. First one, I'm going to give an example of. There's lots we could talk about. The first one is feminism. Now, when I say that word, that means 40 things across the board here. It can mean lots of different things to people in the room. It could be as extreme as someone believing that no man should ever be in charge over a woman in any job or any place or in any situation. It could be as subtle as a sign in your house that says, Mama's house, Mama's rules. I mean, it's that far of a range. In essence, this is what it is. It's the desire for women to leave and trade their role for men. But the saddest thing, this is the saddest thing about it, is that when they play the male's role of leadership, it never actually makes them fulfilled. They will only be fulfilled in the unique role in which God has given them and God has designed them to have. But I'll tell you, few women are at fault, that are swept away in this. Few women. They are a product. This movement that's been around for a while is a product of the failure of men. Let me say that again. Feminism is a product of the failure of men. These women have been failed by the men in their lives to take the lead in a loving and servant way. Not a domineering way. And so, they don't even know what a man looks like, really, in order to emulate him. Which then leads to another issue in our society, the temptation to leave our role. And I've got up here toxic masculinity. You've heard of that. And I just made this one up. Tepid masculinity, which means lukewarm. Toxic masculinity is a term that's floating around a lot in response to feminism. And essentially, it's when a man does this manly stuff to prove that he's a man, and it's usually in the context of, I'm going to assert dominance over the females around me in some way. And really, men are just playing what they think men should do, but they're just as lost as the feminists. I love this quote. If a man-eating lion 
came to the U.S., he would starve because he can't find any men. But again, it's mostly not their fault. I'm going to say that again. It's not mostly their fault because our culture would seek to crush anything that resembles biblical manhood. It's been 50 years of TV with Al Bundy and the humorous, incompetent dad that everybody laughs at. Oh, it's so funny. And mom takes care of everything. That's funny. But we see the, the worthlessness of men all over our media. And we all laugh. Well, you know, boys will be boys. When was the last time for their young people, when was the last time you saw a Disney movie with a boy or a man of character who was the hero? In the last 20 to 30 years, I don't, I don't know. There's one or two maybe. But over and over again, you see this indoctrination that young girls, they have to rise up over these dumb men because these men, they can't help out any of the situation. And all they want to do is oppress the young women. What is that? A complete absence of the biblical picture of who a man is and who a woman is. Complete absence. So now what we see in our culture is these two extremes here I've got. You've got the toxic masculinity because we, since we have such low expectations, excuse me, other way around. Let me first talk about tepid masculinity. Tepid masculinity, lukewarm. Since we have such low expectations of any male, some of them just kind of live as this substance in their mom's basement that is attached to their Xbox. That's, that's manhood at 30 or 40 years old. And the other way around, you have the toxic masculinity where, where there's, there's boys growing up and there's men that are angry because, because it's the worst thing in the world to be a man right now. And so I'll just, you know what? I'm so angry about it. I'm going to be a macho man. And I'm going to tell people how it is. I'm going to sow my wild oats. But both of these men will never feel fulfilled in their shadow roles. The devil has caused them to trade their role biblically for whatever else he can, he can find. The devil's caused them to trade their identity as servant leaders, as protectors, as providers for this caricature of manhood. It's just from a film. Our planet, here we go. Our planet has gotten so far away from manhood and womanhood. I'm saying our planet because it's bigger than just the U.S. That I'm going to put these passages up here about, and this is just a slice, just a sliver of what the Bible talks about of being a woman and being a man. And I don't even know if there needs to be a comment. This is how radical the Bible is about this. Titus 2, 4 through 5. The older women are to admonish the younger women to love their husbands, love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Titus 2, 4 through 5. In case you're wondering, I did not edit that text. That's exactly what the scripture says. And if you're, if you're a little tinged by that, 
Odds are you have been affected by feminism in their culture. What about for men? Husbands, love your wives. Notice the just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. What is that a picture of? Is that a picture of I get to do whatever I want because I'm the man of the house? No, it's a picture of you are the lowest in the house. You are the servant of all and you will sacrifice everything for your house. That is very different than the way that our culture says boys will be boys. No. Not according to God's role. Don't, please, I beg you, don't trade your role for some cheap imitation that looks like a woman or looks like a man of today. Find out the way that God wants you to live. And it doesn't matter what we call it. We can call it manhood, but it isn't. We can call it, as the devil called it, authority and glory of the world, but that isn't what Jesus came for. And there are many that that are called churches. But if they don't function within the role that God has given them, they ain't a church. We can call it what we want, but let's not trade ourselves with partial deceptions the devil offers in our role. All right, the last temptation. Third temptation back in Luke. Luke in uh, verse 9 through 13 He's taken up to a top, the top of the back of the temple, probably about a 450 um, uh, foot drop down the Kedron Valley. And so my question is, if we know Jesus, know he's God, why in the world would suicide be tempting? Is that what's going on here? Hey, just jump off. I don't think so. He quotes, the devil quotes Psalm 91 to Jesus which Jesus wrote. But he quotes it to him to show that God will take care of his people. God will take care of you. Surely you're God's chosen, so he's not going to let anything happen to you. Now, can I make an aside here just for a second for, for us men especially who teach? Sometimes the, the, the warning goes out, we've got to have book, chapter, verse preaching. Well, even the devil does that. He gave book, chapter, verse. Book, chapter, verse right here for what he needed to do. If the devil, and I I think he could, add ten more verses, would it make it any less true or more true? No. We're, We're not just looking for book, chapter, verse. We're looking for how to understand God's Word in the context in which it was delivered. Uh, which, takes, which takes a lot more study than just grabbing different verses. Um, so our goal is, is that as well. But, but back to this. What, what, is, what is that temptation about? Jesus helps us again with where he quotes in Exodus 17. We're not going to go there, but I want you to read it on your own time. It is literally the next chapter right after what we read about the manna. But as they go into a new place... The children of Israel are thirsty, and they complain. They say, we're going to die because we're dying of thirst. And so God has Moses strike the rock. The water comes out. The people are satisfied. But then it says in the text, in um, Exodus 17, verse 7, says that God named it Meribah and Massa because they tested and they fought against me, saying, this was not said until this verse, 
is the Lord with us or not? That's the issue. The issue isn't water. The issue is, is the Lord with me or not? So when the devil says, if you jump off here, God's going to catch you. What's the temptation? What is the devil trying to get Jesus to give into? Jesus was tempted to trade faith for sight. Faith for sight. If he saw God act with his own eyes, that when he jumped off, God would swoop down with angels and pick him up, then he would know God was with him. God said he'll bear you up, so will he? Is the Lord really with me? We're 40 days in, and I can't live much longer. This is one that all of us can easily fall into. What's the next opportune time? What the devil will want us to do today is to seek the signs. Seeking the signs. This is what's happening when one of our friends comes to work and he's really excited and he says, Hey, you know what? The Holy Spirit got me a great parking space at the mall the other day. Now, some of us could chuckle at that, but people do believe that. Now, why? This is what's happening when we know the truth, but something good comes out of it, so we reason that, that God must be okay with it then. You know, like, well, you know, the scriptures teach that they shouldn't be married, but, you, you know, um, she ended up be, be, becoming baptized, so I think God's okay with it. That's seeking a sign and not what God's word says. What's embedded in that? We want to live by sight, not by faith. We want to see, is God going to be with us or not? God's word is not enough. This is looking that God is going to approve us in some way. Jesus trusted in God, not because he, wanted so many, he saw so many signs that God said, you're doing a great job. But he trusted in God because he knew him. He knew his character. He knew the kind of person that he was. And so if that's why, and you think about this with your wife, you think about this with your children, children to parents, that's why he would never t- test his father's love. What does that convey? Doubt. That conveys, I just doubt if he really does love me, if he really, if he really does have my best interest at heart. I don't give my children tests to see if they're going to love me. And the other way around. We trust in him regardless of what we go through because we know his character, not necessarily his every move. We know how much he loved Jeremiah, how much he loved Job, how much he loved Joseph, how much he loved Jesus. And yet they still suffered, and yet they went through some hard things, but he was still there. And this is in the back of Adam and Eve's thinking with the fruit. God, God said that, I know, but is that really what's going to happen? I mean, he said it, but can we really be sure until we go all the way down that path? So the devil's going to tempt us through psychology. He's going to tell us, you know what, it's just better, young people, if you live together and then one day get married because it will really make your bond stronger for when you get married one day. Really? Really? Don't test the Lord your God. 
The Lord teaches us to live by faith, not by sight, and trust Him with your marriage. It will be a wonderful thing if we trust Him. The devil will tempt us through humanism. He tells us that fulfilling our life is finding whatever makes you happy. Frozen. Let it go, as she would say. And fill yourself up. Find yourself. Really? What does God teach us? God says, lose yourself. If you find yourself, you'll lose your life. But if you lose yourself for my sake and the gospel's sake, you will save it. That's what Jesus teaches us. Trust me. Walk by faith, not by sight. And there's just a thousand other examples that we could talk about with this. So are we going to trade our God for our self-reliance? We're going to trade our role for whatever, whatever the world's going to tell us? We're going to trade our faith for sight. Are we going to stand, as often is said about this section, how did Jesus answer the devil every time with God's word? Every time we will answer these temptations because we know the devil is a coward, as James teaches us, and he will flee if we resist him strong in our faith. He will flee. Are you trading anything in your life for something cheaper? for something that God would not want you to have because he knows that it'll hurt you. He knows it's not what you need in your life. Maybe, maybe you are. Maybe I am. It's the time to reflect on that. Is there something that I have given in in some of these temptations? But maybe you're sitting here this morning and you are accepting the greatest trade he wants in your life. He wants you to trade this home of glory that he's giving you to go to one day for a dusty, run-down shack that can't do anything for you, this life. He wants you to come to him. If you're not sure how to do that, if you want to talk more about that afterwards, don't leave without talking with me or one of the people here. We, We want to help you. Whatever the situation is, why don't you come as we stand and sing.